are going to look at the question of God and the justice of God. And if you've ever asked yourself, if you've ever been so frustrated with like all the sin in the world and, and, and people like seeming to get away with sin with impunity and, uh, and why, where is God? Where is God? Why isn't he come through? Why isn't he coming through and addressing the problem of evil? This, this sermon is, is for you. <laughs> so let's stand, if you would, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word. I am um, I'm just the reader. We are standing out of respect for the speaker who is God speaking to us through his uh, perfect and inerrant word. Let's, let's pay attention to it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we praise you that uh, you are the God over all. Lord, and you promise that you will bring justice to the earth, Lord. However, uh, when you say that, it oftentimes means more than what we're thinking. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we study this word uh, to get a bigger and fuller picture of what the day of judgment means, what it means for us, for the world, uh, and even more so what the day of judgment meant for our Lord Jesus. Uh, and how that shows him to be the most beautiful thing in the universe, Lord. So help us to see the beauty of Christ today. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate us uh, and that you would give us minds to, uh, minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Can you bring me that? Nisa, bring me that water bottle. It's in the side pocket there. Thanks. One of the things that uh, Edward Snowden, the notorious NSA leaker, leaked was, was the fact that the NSA had actually had like a massive computer net. Uh, a computer net that used machine learning or artificial intelligence to, mo to monitor cellular metadata, meaning basically all cellular activity. Uh, in order to find patterns 
that flushed out Al-Qaeda couriers, which is the way we, when, which is how we found Osama bin Laden, for example. They would, they would look at these cell phone records, they would find the couriers that went between the big heads of Al-Qaeda, and then they would track their movements, track their cell phones, and then what would happen? Either a SEAL team or a, a cruise missile would show up at your doorstep. Uh, and so, put that together, what he, what he told us was basically that we have, there is a basically a sentient computer that flushes out enemies of the state uh, in order to do justice by targeting them for drone strikes. And you know what they call this program? You can't make this up. You know what they call it? Skynet. You can't even make this stuff up. Now, to catch up, to catch you non-nerds up, in case anybody's wondering what Skynet is, Skynet is the sentient computer program, the sentient computer net from the Terminator movie series that was constructed as a military uh, computer system by the United States to, to, to operate and to monitor the drones that would then protect us from the enemy, right? It would do justice upon the enemy, except what happened? What happened when they developed Skynet? Eventually, Skynet became self-aware, and when it became self-aware, uh, it didn't really distinguish between them and us, the enemies and us. It just saw mankind in all of our glory and decided uh, rightly that the thing to do to bring about true justice was just to launch an all-out nuclear strike and annihilate mankind altogether. Uh, in other words, the creators of Skynet, they wanted to bring justice to their enemies. Uh, but when it came online, it saw that the only justice, uh, that justice needed to come to everyone, and so it, and so it did. And uh, the spiritual equivalent of that same idea is being played out here in this passage in Malachi. Uh, as has been played out throughout the Bible, and that is uh, that the, here, here's what's going on. The people of Judah are mad at God. They're mad at God. Why? Because they feel like there's no downside to sin. They're like, they feel like they're trying, they're working hard to be holy and to do it, you know, to follow the law and to do what God says. And, uh, and yet the evil people in their midst or the people that are sinning seem to be able to get away with it, with impunity. And so they're God by saying, well, look, I guess, you know, God must love the people who do evil. He must be the people that they favor. And they ask in a parallel question, where is, where is the God of justice? In other words, they're calling down judgment. They're calling God to come down and execute justice on all the earth. And, and the problem is, uh, they have no idea that the justice that they're demanding, when they call down Judgment Day, they are calling down justice that is going to come not just for those evil people over there, but for everybody. And they seem to have no real sense of the desperate sickness of their own hearts in and as they do that. And so that's the basic idea of this passage today. Real simple, it's that because our hearts are desperately sick, there's really only two options. Either we can be judged for our sins 
or Jesus can be judged for our sins. Keeping it real simple today, folks. So let's look at that one part at a time. First, our hearts are desperately sick. Before we get to the big themes of, of justice, uh, and we're going to get to that in a minute, I want to take a minute and try to look behind the scenes of the attitudes of these people in the passage. What is it? What, what are they mad about? Why are they mad at God? And why, why is God being literally worn out by them? God says, since you're wearying me with these statements that you're making, right? Like, like, like children, they're just wearing their parents out. Parents, you know what that's like. Gonna get an amen when your kids are just wearing you out. God's like, God's kind of saying the same thing. He's like, you guys, you kids, I'm on my last nerve. You are wearing me out <laughs> with these statements, with the attitude behind the statement. So what is it? What is it that he's saying? Now, not to turn every one of our services into an AA meeting. <laughs> However, sorry, we, we've been like talking a lot about stuff from our background, but I'm constantly amazed at how similar um, addiction is to, is to every other sin, how similar the patterns of addiction like, like serve as a, like a paradigm or a pattern for just about every other sin in the book, which is which is why, like, you know, the AA program or the 12-step program works on just about every spiritual sickness under the sun, whether it's a chemical addiction or whether it's a food addiction or a sex addiction or any other kind of addiction, the principles work. And why is that? It's because everybody, uh, the addict, everybody, the, the person who is, um, you know, trapped in addiction, they have, they have their dope, right? The dope that they have to have. Uh, and when you take that paradigm, you can see that no matter what your addiction is, no matter what your sin is, no matter what you're caught up in, everybody's got their dope, whatever that sin is. And everybody's trying to protect that dope. Uh, and everybody uh, gets mad or afraid when their dope is threatened. And when, you, and when the dope is taken away, everybody has uh, this kind of secret jealousy when they see other people who seem to be getting away with doing their favorite sin and they can't. And you kind of get mad about it, right? Uh, there's this, this passage in, in uh, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and in this doctor, Dr. Silkworth, who ran uh, the biggest hospital in New York City treating alcoholics. He said, he said, alcoholics are generally restless, irritable, and discontent unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which they see others taking with impunity. And so it's like, you kind of get all like wound up and you're, you know, restless, irritable, discontent. You're angry. You know that if you could just have a couple of drinks that it would help you. And you see other people doing it and they're not seeming to have any downside to it. And it just kind of drives you crazy. Like, why can they do it and I can't? Well, listen, listen to what Israel says. The sinners of Jerusalem. Uh, this is, they say this in verse 17, the first verse. You, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? When I first read this, I thought they were saying, uh, you know, there's people who are calling good, good, or good, evil, and evil, good. 
and they're, they're saying, how can that happen? But that's not really what they're saying. They're saying they're seeing, it's kind of a mocking statement. They're seeing other people all around them seeming to get away with sin uh, and, they're say, and, and with, with impunity, and they're saying, God must love them. I guess God must favor those people who are sinning because the parallel is, where is the God of justice? Same kind of question, two different, two different ways. Kind of mocking God, saying you must love those people who sin. And the parallel question of where is the God of justice? In other words, those people over there, they get to sin and God does nothing about it. He must love it. He must love them. And where is the justice in that? Which is the same thing pretty much the Israelites have always done, right? When God rescued them from brutal slavery in Egypt and produced all of these miracles, one after another, after another, after another, brought them through the Red Sea, eliminated their enemies, provided everything they needed in the desert. What did they say? Oh, you have brought us out here to die. I wish we could be back in Egypt where things were good. It's funny when the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai say that, right? <laughs> but it's also kind of funny when the Israelites in the wilderness of North America say it as well, right? <laughs> I'm so mad at God because my other friends seem to get to sin and they get away with it. They get to have their cake and eat it too. And that's super unfair, God, and I'm mad at you. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> Tell the truth. Just, is it just me? No, it's not just me. Well, what is this? Listen, what does this reveal? What does this reveal about our hearts? It reveals that we might say we love and worship and serve God, but there's still a part, there's still a part of us, there's still a part of our hearts that love and worship and serve our sin. We end up grieving the loss of our sin more than we grieve our sin. And that happens, man. Which is where, you know, the, the, the example or the analogy of the addict is again so helpful because every addict in his addiction cannot imagine life without his dope. That was totally my story. I mean, I got, it just, you got to the point, you know it's destroying you, you know it's destroying life, uh, you know it's going to kill you, and yet the alternative seems so unbearable. Living life without it seems so unbearable that you continue with the, with the train wreck because the alternative seems so terrifying. Uh, and yet, every addict in recovery, once in recovery, can't imagine going back into the hellish nightmare of addiction. And that same is true for us, right? There's this saying, this saying that I love, that I, you know, I, I, I try to remember to encourage people with whenever they're like locked up in this kind of battle. And that is that I tell them from my experience that God has never taken something out of my life that he hasn't replaced it with something even better. Even though there might be a little fire getting, getting there, uh, and it might require a little trust and a little faith that what God is doing for us is good, it is a spiritual axiom that God has never 
ever taken something out of my life that he hasn't replaced it with something 10 times better. And that's an encouraging thought. We're going to get, I'm talk a little bit more about that in point three. Uh, but for now, let's, now let's go back to the, to the, to the main question. We're still left, we're still left with a legitimate question here, which is where is God in the face of evil, in the face of suffering, uh, in the face of sin? Why doesn't God come and deal with this? It's a legit question. So second point is this. We can be judged for our own sin. We can be judged for our sin. Every, 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 every religious system, a lot of times people talk about or attack Christianity and, and over the problem of evil, right? But it's not just Christianity that has, has this issue. Every religious ideal, every religious system, every religion has a, a problem with explaining the existence of evil. For example, in Hinduism, depending on who you talk to, Depending on what age of Hinduism you're speaking of, evil is, you know, either explained away as an illusion, it doesn't really exist, which is a great abstract thought until evil actually hits you and then you realize that it's very, very real, it's a very real thing. Or uh, they'll explain it away as being a karmic debt that must be just endured without question. Uh, or... Some Hinduism, uh, a lot of Hinduism teaches that Brahma, the main god, created women to destroy virtuous men, and that's where sin and evil in the world came from. So meditate on that, ladies, next time you're doing your hot yoga section, se session. But modern Western monotheistic religions like Christianity, the, the attack against us comes like this. Uh, it says, God cannot be both all-powerful and good at the same time. Because, why? If he's all-powerful, if he's, if he, if he's all-powerful, he would eradicate sin and evil. Um, uh, if he's good, he would do that, right? And so because exi evil exists in the world, it either means one of two things. Either God is not all-powerful and he can't deal with sin, or he's not good and he won't deal with sin. But you can't have... You can't have it both ways, and so that's how the attack usually, usually comes, right? And I've always been fascinated with this argument, more so about how it's always deployed as a kind of checkmate against Christianity. Uh, I, it, my favorite example is this, this guy, this, this apologist, was on an English news show, right? And the English interviewer was you know, very, very snarky and snobby, just lording over this, this you know, this this colonist buffoon. And, uh, you know, he, start, he started the, the interview just like that. He didn't even say hello. He didn't even like greet. He was like, so, blah, blah, blah. Uh, since evil exists in the world, is your God not all-powerful or is he not good? Which is it? And then he just like sat there all smugly like, you know, the interview is over, right? Um, why, I'm fascinated about it because it's, I'm fascinated about the way it's always deployed as that checkmate, as if there's no possible response to it, when it's been answered very well, literally for millennia, right? Uh, it's been answered over and over and over again, and yet people still 
hold on to that argument, you know? And I guess we can be, we can be guilty of the same thing. We have our pet arguments that we really like that, you know, that we want to hold on to even if they've been, you know, proven fallacious. And so it's not a surprise that the other side does the same thing. And yet, well, the answer is everywhere in the Bible. And that is that God uh, is bringing justice. God promises that he will bring justice. He's just not doing it on our timeline, which is, such, you know, that's not a really hard thing to, to understand, right? You can't, if we're creatures and God is the creator and he has true wisdom and knowledge and power, then he, he's, he has a better idea of how to deal with justice, how to deal with sin in the world. Uh, and he doesn't have to abide by our timeline. And it seems like there's no comprehension of the fact that God could have his reasons, his very good reasons, why he is allowing sin in a limited way to run its course over the course of history. Uh, but he promises at the end of time, he is going to come and make everything right. That is one of the most solid and, and hopeful promises of all of Christianity. We don't dismiss the existence of evil. Uh, we don't downplay it. Uh, we take it very seriously and we say God is going to right every wrong. God is going to do justice in the earth in a way that's far above and beyond our ability to, to even comprehend it, right? He promises here, even in this passage, what does he say? I'm going to draw near to you for judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker, the widow, the fatherless, and those who oppress and thrust aside the sojourner and who, those who don't fear me, to which point the Israelites and all of us would say collectively like, let out a, a breath and collectively say, good thing, I'm not a sorcerer, <laughs> right? And yet, what is, what is sorcery in its essence? Sorcery is what? It's manipulating the supernatural powers for personal gain or power. And what have we just talked about last week? What is Israel doing? Israel has, a, has adopted these corrupted worship practices from the nation around them, and they're viewing the sacrifice and their religious rituals as a way to obligate God to come through and do their will, which is what? Manipulating supernatural powers for personal gain and power. And what do we do? You know, we talked about that last week, about how frustrated we can get when we, we get wrapped up or we get led astray into this mindset that that spiritual life or Christianity is about like making this life better and that we can, if we, if we do good, if we do the right things, if we check off the right boxes, if we do our Bible study and we have a vibrant prayer life and we're doing all these things that we somehow then God is obligated to do good to us and that we can call out what that good is. We can sign off. I want my career, my, you know, this relationship. I got to have this relate. I got to have this toxic relationship. I must have it, God. I must have this job that's going to like destroy my family. I must, you know, and we make all these lists of things and then God doesn't come through. And we get angry and we say, I did my part. You don't love me. 
how is that not practicing the principles of sorcery and calling it Christian faith? And man, we all do it to a bigger or lesser degree, right? Everybody in this room has been disappointed because you really wanted something and you, you really worked hard that week to make God happy with you and he didn't, ha and he didn't do it. And you were like... <laughs> and then two years later, you're like, oh God, I thank you for not answering that prayer. <laughs> oh God, thank you for not answering my prayers. <laughs> and let's not even talk about those other categories. Jesus' definition of what an adulterer is. If you've lusted in your heart, that makes you, that reveals that although you may be able to like modify your behavior on the outside, on the inside, you have the heart of an adulterer. You are an adulterer. Well, let's not talk about Jesus's description or talking about lying. And let's especially not talk about those who come up with clever religious sounding arguments for why we don't have to care about the working poor or foster kids in the system or abused women or the oppression of minorities in our midst because we have really good theology. Let's not even talk about that. We've talked about that a lot. So here's the deal. Listen to Amos 5. I was kind of blown away by this passage. This is a passage that Dr. King used uh, in one of his famous speeches. You'll hear it at the very end, but listen to the whole context. Let's be what's happening in this passage. This is from Amos 5. Uh, people in Amos' day are doing the same thing. They're calling down judgment. They're like, God, judge these people. They suck. <laughs> And God says, woe to you, <laughs> woe to you, Israel, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. It is as if a man fled from a lion and a bear ate him. <laughs> uh, it's as if a man like sought refuge in a house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. It's not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it. And then he goes on, no break. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, your religious holidays. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What is justice like? What is the day of the Lord like? What is the day of judgment like? It's like those crazy doomsday movies where they're sitting on the beach watching the tidal wave come in for everybody. That's what he's saying, God saying to Israel, he's like, don't you understand what you're asking for? 
it's like Skynet. Once it is unleashed, it's not just coming for them, it's coming for everybody with impartiality. And your sins, your sins must be judged in the same way as everybody else's. God is a God of justice. He cannot not be just if he refused or denied or winked at sin or just swept it under the rug and did not enact or execute justice with impartiality, he would no longer be God. He has to enact justice. He has to enact cosmic justice on all the earth. And so, if the God who loves us also must judge us, here's the big question that Malachi asked, who can endure the day of his coming? And the answer is no one. No one can endure the day of his coming. Well, almost no one. Which brings us to the third point, which is we can either be judged for our own sin or Jesus can be judged for our sin. Maybe you're looking at this passage and you're, and you're kind of seeing it. You're seeing what's happening and, and you're like, hey, this seems like it's talking about, this isn't talking about uh, the final day of judgment. It seems like it's talking about the, not the second coming. It seems like it's talking about the first coming. It seems like it's talking about John the Baptist and talking about Jesus and uh, not the day of the Lord at the end of history. How is that possible? Sounds like it's at least like two days here. Uh, how is that even possible? Uh, and that's true. Uh, it's true. And the reality is that the concept of the day of the Lord is really hard to understand because it doesn't follow uh, our expectations of time. It's like that movie Tenant. You ever seen the movie Tenant? Where they, the, 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 the basic theme of the movie Tenant is that they've developed technology to reverse the entropy of objects, including humans. Entropy means that the rate at which, you know, material matter breaks down, right? They reverse that, and the effect is they're able to create objects that begin moving backwards in time. Uh, and so, uh, and so because it, the movie itself like totally goes against our like universal experience of time, it's, almost, it's notoriously difficult to understand. Right, if you like look up, you, go to, you see the movie, you go home, you Google it, what was Tenet all about? You get like 8,000 hits of everybody trying to explain to you what the, what, the, what the plot of Tenet was, and none of them make sense. You gotta watch it like eight times, right? But the problem, why? What's the problem? It totally messes with our understanding of time, so it's hard to understand. The same thing is true with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not linear. It's not one event at the end of history. It's not some day in the distant future, but the day of the Lord is God's eternal day. It's the eternal now that God exists in, in the heavenly realm with all the perfect justice and all the perfect righteousness that exists in the heavenly realm. It's literally the Sabbath day of rest that God enjoys all the time that we will enter into at some point into that eternity. Uh, 
And what happens throughout the Bible is that at certain points in history, every now and then, God's eternal day like breaks into time and space and touches down like a tornado. And brings with it what? The utter disaster of God's perfect justice and perfect righteousness. When the world of God breaks in and the perfect realm of heaven breaks in to the fallen realm, it brings with it that perfect righteousness and justice that heaven is, and it brings catastrophe and judgment with it, right? So that's why when you read through the Bible, you see like all these different things that are talked about as the day of the Lord, the, the fall. The fall, when God comes to Adam and Eve after they eat the fruit, is just talked about as the day. Uh, the flood is talked about as the day. The exodus talked about as the day. What do all these things have in common? It's when the, the reality of the eternal realm of heaven breaks into time and space like a tornado and just brings justice and the catastrophe of it onto the earth. Uh, and so there's one more super important time when that tornado touched down on earth, when the day came. Listen to verse 3-1. Talks about it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. What does that sound like? That's the day. The day of judgment coming. And yet, that first, that first sentence, behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me. All three it's synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all of them explain that and say that's John the Baptist. So this is clearly first coming stuff, right? Uh, which means that the me, uh, the Lord whom you seek, the messenger of the covenant, all of those equal Jesus, God incarnate, coming to earth, uh, coming to earth. Side note, this passage alone from Malachi 400 BC pretty much settles the argument about the deity of Christ. Was Jesus God? Uh, it's not, a, it's, it's not, we don't have to wait for the New Testament to get that. We get it right here and other places in the Old Testament for sure. But so here comes Jesus. It's an instance of the day of the Lord. And what is he, what is he going to do? Basically talks about refining with fire, the judgment of fire. Fire is always brought uh, forth as a, a symbol of God's judgment coming down uh, and, and washing, fuller soap, right? It's really uh, uh, an, an extreme example of washing clean with water. In fact, what they would do back in the day was they would, you know, they would fuller, a fuller is a washer, right? It means washer. They would take the clothes, they would wash them, and then they would beat them with sticks <laughs> to get them clean, to, to knock the dirt out of them, and to knock the dirt out of the clothes to clean them. And so it's this picture of cleansing by fire and cleansing by water. Uh, and what, ha what does this mean? Uh, Listen to, listen to this verse. What is Jesus going to do? How does this happen? 
quote from Jesus in Luke. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, would that it were already kindled. And I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. So Jesus says two things there. He's coming, he's coming to bring that fire, but he's only kindling it. There's only a beginning to it. He's bringing that fire, but in a limited way. Uh, and also, uh, the great washing is starting in a limiting way. And how does this happen? Where or when is the big question? When does this happen? The New Testament is super clear that when Jesus speaks of the baptism that he is to be baptized with, he's talking about the cross. He is undergoing, uh, in Colossians, baptism is linked to circumcision. And that circumcision is, is a what? It's a blood ritual, right? In the Old Testament, circumcision was the entry into the covenant. And yet, Jesus says that there's a circumcision of the cross that he is going to undergo. When Jesus was nailed to the cross in that bloody, bloody, bloody event, it was his circumcision so that the blood ritual is gone. And now baptism, which washes us with water, replaces that, right? So the New Testament is clear that that baptism was the cross. And in the same way, the New Testament is clear that the fire of God's judgment was poured out on Jesus on the cross. That that day of judgment came when Jesus was nailed to the cross and the fury of God's wrath and judgment of that tornado touched down, but not on everybody. It touched down on Jesus. So when we talk about this all the time, Jesus was judged for our sins. God poured out our judgment upon Jesus. On the cross, the day of the Lord came in all of its power and fury and poured out the wrath of God on Jesus, judging him for our sins so that we would never ever have to worry about judgment again. We would never have to worry about judgment again. Our salvation is based in the character of God. It is not based in anything that we do. It's not based in the checklist of stuff we gotta check off. It's based in the character of God who cannot lie. And God has already, we've already gone to trial. Our sins have already been judged and punished in Jesus. And so it would be unfair, it would be unjust of God to bring us to trial again and to punish us again for the same sins they've already been dealt with. Now, I want you to see how powerful that is. What that means is that we cannot be judged for our sin. It's not even like, you know, God's decision to do, or God's like choosing. His character forbids him from doing the injustice of judging us for our sins when our sins have already been judged and punished in Jesus. And in that great day of the Lord, which hits on all these different points in history, it is true. It is coming again in all of its fullness at the second coming of Jesus. Fire and blood and smoke. Uh, it is coming with terror and fury. Uh, and everyone who is calling out, for, you know, and mocking God for not bringing justice and calling for justice against those evil people over there, 
are going to be shocked when justice truly comes and it comes for everyone. However, if you're Christian, if you're in Jesus, if you're trusting him for your salvation, you have nothing to worry about. There's nothing for us to worry about on that day. Why? Because we've already gone through the day of the Lord. We've already been through that ordeal as Jesus was judged for us and punished for our sins. So when we look forward in time, we have nothing to fear, no fear of judgment, no guilt in life, no fear in death, as that great hymn says. All we have to look forward to is the transition of our soul and body from this dead and dying world into a world of beauty and light that's more indescribably wonderful than we can even imagine. And so what that means for us, the refining fire, the fuller's soap, that's not judgment language for us. In fact, there's all, I, I, if we had time, I'd go through a bunch of Old Testament passages that say, first God will judge all the world, the remnant who is left, his people, who he saved, will then go under the refining fire, the fuller's soap. It's literally saying God is at work for those of us who believe in him, for those of us who are in Jesus. God is at work purifying us and delivering us out of the tyranny of our multiple addictions to sin. And over the slow course of this life, God is bringing us ever out uh, of, our, of our imprisonment to those addictions to that one day we are going to be, one day in the future when we are with Jesus, uh, even though right now we may look at our, some of our sins, favorite sins, and we can't imagine how we would ever get through life without them. There's coming a day when we are with Jesus in eternity and we will look back and we won't be able to imagine going back into the hell or the beginning of hell that this life is. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, we thank you for the truth that your word speaks about bigger and more startling and more beautiful realities than we could even imagine. God, we are we are all guilty, every one of us, me. Every one of us is guilty of taking Christianity and trying to make it this small thing to manipulate you to get stuff in this temporary world, often stuff that's going to be rusting in a junkyard in 20 years or the like. Things that will fade away, things that have no real eternal value. When it's something so much greater than that, Lord, you are promising to to, to wash us clean of these, of these things of death that we cling to and replace them with the beautiful things of life that you have bought for us through the death of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that we would all see that more clearly, that that would be our, our constant thought, that you are, you are rescuing us from the things of death. Even now, you're pulling us out of our addiction to sin and bringing us into the beauty and power of eternal quality life even now and that we would seek that and strive after it that we would want it more than anything else in the world and we pray that through that Lord you would build us uh, up to be truly to be salt and light in the world so that we might 
be witnesses uh, to anyone. When the world crushes them, or when they're hurt by some false version of Christianity, we would be able to stand as a light uh, and as a city of refuge and a beacon of hope. In Jesus' name, amen.